Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping on Thursday, February 27th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hello, everybody. Shafali Luthra of Kaiser Health News. Hi. And Kimberly Leonard of the Washington Examiner. Hello. Later in this episode, I will talk to Sydney Lupkin, lately of KHN and now at NPR, about the latest bill of the month. It's about why two effectively identical drugs have very different price tags. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So... Let us start this week with the novel coronavirus, which now has an official scientific name, COVID-19, or is it COVID? I don't know, but healthcare is two words. Healthcare is two words. <laughs> this was the week that Washington, along with Wall Street, started to sit up and pay attention to the fact that this virus is likely to make it to the U.S. in significant numbers, and it would be good if we were ready for it. The Trump administration has been, shall we say, not terribly organized from a messaging point of view. President Trump has been downplaying the potential dangers, while career public health officials from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the National Institutes of Health have tried to gently warn the public and policymakers that they should be preparing for something potentially very disruptive. And now Vice President Pence has been put in charge of the entire administration effort. What does that signify? Who wants to jump in? I mean, it signifies a whole lot of things. The the public health community is pretty unified in saying that this is coming and it's going to get worse. We don't know how much worse. We are obviously more prepared than Wuhan was because for many reasons um, the president – but there's also tension between the public health officials who are saying get ready and understand and the some of the economic people who are saying nothing to watch here. Fast stock market. Please bounce back because, I mean, we've already seen you know ripple effects throughout the global economy, the stock market, and that is just going to get worse. And it's not just our stock market. It's, no, no. Um, it's everything global. And supply lanes and industrial output and in certain industries in certain places, it's just going to get worse. Think of, I mean, would you go on a cruise right now? I wouldn't anyway. That's in the whole other world. <laughs> forget that. But I mean, you know, obviously many sectors are going to be disrupted. And, you know, the economy is one of the strong things president has going for him as he goes into reelection. So what does Pence bring Someone to this? Someone else gets to talk. <laughs> well, according to the president, he brings, you know, the relationship that he has with a lot of states as a former governor, you know, someone who understands how states operate well. Um, so that was why he sort of tapped Pence to the role as far as the task force of coronavirus. That apparently remains the same. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar is in charge of that. It's not clear exactly how much he was aware of how there'd be some turnover in the leadership here. Ultimately, he has to report to Pence on everything. No, I mean, I just don't. I, I think that we knew yesterday morning they were going to you know, put somebody as a point person. I don't think Azar knew right. a so, lot about what was who well, and what and when until pretty last And he, he did say that in hearings. He was asked about it repeatedly. I mean, it was he was in eight hours of uh, hearings with the House uh, yesterday about the budget, about Obamacare, about coronavirus. And he was asked a lot about this question, will, you, will a Corona czar be appointed? Uh, Trump was careful to say this is not a czar role. Um, everyone will be reporting to Pence and he'll just kind of be the guy who gets everyone 
one together. We should point out that during the Ebola outbreak in 2014, the Obama administration did appoint a czar. It was Ron Klain, who was then the chief of staff to Vice President Biden. Um, and there were, you know, some eyebrows raised, including mine, I will say, because he didn't have a lot of health background. Yeah, he but, was a competent manager, but, but he was not a public health official. So that's not a fair, you know, for someone to say, well, it should have been a public health official you know, competent manager who knows how to rely on the expertise of public health experts right. is a reasonable And way as it to turned go. out, yeah, he was the right person for the job because his job was to sort of coordinate the experts and, and everybody else, which he did. Right. And one thing I will say is that, you know, I covered all of this and I, I mean, I remember the Republicans at the time were the ones who were putting a lot of pressure on Obama to appoint a czar. And then it was once it spread to a nurse here that that appointment was made. And so now we're seeing that happening with Democrats where they're putting a lot of pressure on the Trump administration to make sure the leadership is all in place here. So this is not Mike Pence's first brush with a spreading epidemic. When he was governor of Indiana, he was faced with an unexpected outbreak of HIV that was being spread by intravenous drug users. Someone remind us of what happened in Indiana. Well, this was the worst HIV outbreak in Indiana history. And one of the the consensus from public health experts, right, was you need a needle exchange. You need safe, clean needles to prevent the spread of disease. And Mike Pence was fairly slow on coming around to a needle exchange. And research now suggests that lives were were harmed as a result of that. And that's important context when we think about his public health background. Yes. I mean, this was a rural county, Scott County, um, with a big drug problem. Um, public health experts who looked at it at the time and who studied it more extensively later, it's not just was not just a knee jerk reaction. It was largely preventable. And the, the reaction, it, there was like, was it 200 cases? This was a small county. So it was not a lickety split. Let's pull every public health measure we have to prevent and then minimize that outbreak. Um, we still aren't sure how well some of the lessons are learned because there is a surveillance program of high-risk counties. But that, that's sort of the poster child of how not to manage an opioid crisis. So that's sort of the, the, the question here is did, did, what did Mike Pence learn from that and will well, he bring I, it to his you – know? I would say that the administration does appear to have learned from that because Surgeon General Jerome Adams, who also oversaw the health department in Indiana when Pence was governor – is now our Surgeon General and is now pushing communities, urging them to implement similar syringe exchange programs uh, as a way to fight the HIV epidemic in this country. So it is something that the administration is doing now, that it is pushing communities to do. It does remain controversial. But, you know, I do see the Surgeon General at multiple events really encouraging these sites. Right. But there's, there's a CDC surveillance program of high-risk counties. And we do know that there's at least one in, in, in West Virginia where they, they have their own outbreak. So it, it's been learned unevenly. I mean, there is a recognition this could happen again. But I think <laughs> that's the first thing anyone in the healthcare world, when you hear Mike Pence in healthcare, the first thing, you, know, you think of two things. You think of you know his conservative Medicare, Medicaid reforms, and you think of Scott County. So I think when last night we were watching TV, I thought there'd be an appointment of some person to coordinate in some kind of role, whether they called it a czar or a king or whatever, um, or vice president. Um, you know, I wasn't surprised by that. I, I, I was surprised it was Pence. So it feels like one of the driving themes of this presidency, particularly of the president himself, has been to undermine the public's trust in science and in government officials. How might that play out if there's an emergency like this one that kind of requires trust in science and in government? Well, I think we've seen it play out already with the CDC this week. The official who's been doing the telephone briefings talked about sort of the inevitability. I'm not sure how she pronounces her last name, Nancy Messonnier, is it right? Talked on the one of the calls with the reporters that the CDC has been briefing regularly and gave a pretty grim 
And many people would say, realistic. I mean, she didn't say we're all going to die, but she said it's going to be here and there's going to be disruption and, and it, it could be severe. Um, she didn't say the bubonic plague is coming. She didn't say it was 1917, but she she was pretty – sort of a punch. And you know, there are reports that the White House was quite upset by that. But it was interesting because the CDC has stuck to the science. That same day, that afternoon, there was a task force press conference that some of us were at and others watched online. Um, and the CDC, top CDC person who was there, Ann Shukat, didn't back off. She she actually used the word global pandemic. She did not contradict, even though she was on stage, you know, in public. Her language may have been a sliver softer, but it wasn't a, don't worry, it's not so bad. She said it's coming too. So you've had this tension with, um, you know, President Trump and the economic advisors, you know, Kudlow being the most, and Kudlow probably being the most, nothing to worry about. Um, because they're worried about the stock market. Right. So far, the scientists have been scientists, um, and we have not had the equivalent of you know firing the hurricane forecasters who, who said that the storm was not was in Alabama, not Florida. We haven't seen that, but th- that's sort of the tension and what's in the back of people's minds. And Azar was interesting because at that press conference, the task force. When he was asked that question about the CDC warnings, and the, he didn't contradict it, but he also said, let the CDC answer it. He was not on camera saying, yep, epidemic outbreak. You know, those <laughs> words did not cross his lips on camera, but he also let the scientists speak. Which was, which is appropriate in that situation. I mean, it's we not, wouldn't be asking this in yeah. many. Yes, yeah. that's and and yet I feel like we need to ask it with this administration right. because it's not just who gets to speak; it's what does the public hear. But I've also noticed in Congress, and maybe you two probably been up there more than I have because I don't get up there very much. But just reading the comments, there are a lot of fact based comments coming even from both sides of the aisle. You know, we need the truth. We need to know what's coming. Uh, Tom Cole, who's a Republican, who will have a big role in the appropriations process on the emergency. You know, he said, you know, I want to hear from the CDC. He didn't say I want to hear from a clown. You know, he said, I need to know. We need to know as a country what's going on. It was a very fact-based tone. What has been interesting also has been the way in which this is sort of a lens into looking at other major health issues, right? And I'm thinking about Alex Azar speaking about the vaccine and what a vaccine for coronavirus might cost and whether it will be affordable. And that's really controversial, right? I mean, he was very clear that not everyone will be able to afford it necessarily. And is but, that a problem? But as Larry Levitt from the Kaiser Foundation pointed out on Twitter last night, if there is a, if everything goes well and we have a vaccine in a year to a year and a half, and if the U.S. Preventive Services Task, Task Force, Force, I get mm-hmm. the acronym right, um, recommends it, then everybody gets it. Yeah. <laughs> only if you have insurance. Yeah. Well, no, only if you have actually insurance that's comprehensive. And right. That, that's right. If you're in an ACA compliant If you're in an ACA plan. compliant plan. If you're in a short-term plan, It also not. becomes a point where state public health officials, where it's really going to be both smarter and cheaper to immunize people then I think that's let's get a vaccine and then we we will have a national argument about affordability but I think right now those solutions can be addressed later the important thing is It's also as Unlike what the president intimated, it's at least a year away. And it's a year, was, a year pretty, and a half. Yeah, but absolute bare minimum, it's a year away. Right. So. And, and Tony Fauci has now said twice in a row, two days, two or three days this week, that you know this is going to be probably going to be here in a year and a, or a year and a half. And the president did not get up and say, "No, I, I just you know it's going away in April." I mean, we're not hearing so much about it. it'll go 
away when the weather is warm. Yeah. Well, although as, as some experts are saying, it's likely to sort of subside, and, subside then come and then come back. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about campaign 2020. Mm-hmm. There was another Democratic presidential candidate debate this week, the last one before Super Tuesday. Uh, kind of surprisingly, the candidates didn't talk much about the coronavirus or the job the administration is or isn't doing about it. Uh, they did talk about something else that hasn't really been discussed at length yet, health care in rural areas. Amy Klobuchar talked about loan forgiveness programs for health professionals, which, of course, we already have, although they could be better funded. Uh, Bernie Sanders correctly noted that the Affordable Care Act put $2 billion into debt forgiveness programs for those who agree to practice in underserved areas uh, and more visas for doctors from other countries, although that's a controversial subject because the U.S. is draining particularly developing nations of their medical professionals. Um, what else is on the table when it comes to rural health? And and why haven't we heard more about this? I mean, we haven't heard more about this because we hear about Medicare for all. <laughs> that is true. Maybe you can speak more to this, but there isn't that much disagreement amongst Democrats when it comes to how to handle rural health. So the debates haven't focused on that very much. Yeah, I mean, I haven't heard much at all. I mean, a lot of the issues you find, you know, in rural health are some some of the similar issues in terms of coverage, access to doctors. You know, we could potentially hear more about air ambulances, which are necessary to use in um, rural areas to be able to get to a hospital and which we, we know and you all have covered come with huge out-of-pocket medical costs. There was this great story that we never did get to talk about out of Wyoming a couple of weeks ago. They were trying to put the entire air ambulance service under medical Medicaid and the federal government said no. But it was it was literally, you know, sort of a last ditch, you know, how we can bring down the cost of air ambulances. Exactly. I, I think Kimberly's right in that it's not something that Democrats really disagree on. Even the Medicare for all versus the public option, both of them say they will take care of, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's, there'll be extra help for, for rural hospitals in, in Medicare for all, according to, I, I, don't, I don't know if I've heard Bernie Sanders say that. Elizabeth Warren has said it. I'm sure Sanders would say the same thing. Um, he probably has. But also, Remember, the one of the big things about rural hospitals, again, all Democrats agree, is Medicaid expansion. There is a problem with rural health care in all rural states. It is worse in the states that did not expand Medicaid and don't have that money coming in. It is not the sole factor. It is not the fix-it for everything. But look at what's going on in, in you know Georgia where the, the push for Medicaid expansion, such as it is, the limited way that it is, is coming partly because of the rural hospitals versus some of the Midwest states that actually did expand and are doing better you know, relatively speaking, are doing better. Well, let's talk about Medicare for all, because it seems that that's all the candidates want to talk about when it comes to health care. Um, Sanders promoted a new study published in The Lancet that suggests that Medicare for all could actually save money. But Shafala, you wrote about this study and found it makes some uh, pretty questionable assumptions. Yes? There's a lot of good research that estimates what Medicare for all might cost or might save. I would not say this study is one of them. Um, it makes a lot of assumptions around increased utilization. It's sort of experts told me underestimates how much more we would go to the doctor if we had no cost sharing whatsoever. It assumes we would pay all doctors and hospitals at Medicare rates maximum, which most experts would tell you isn't tenable. It assumes very dramatic savings for prescription drug pricing. It doesn't include long-term health, which is a big part of the Sanders plan. And a very expensive part of the Sanders plan. Very expensive, like trillions. And if we're going to talk about Medicare for all being fully financed under Bernie Sanders' proposed taxes... You can't look to this estimate as a reliable source of what it would actually cost us. And the authors of this study are not, uh, shall we say, do not have a depth of experience in estimating the cost of health reform plans. They're epidemiologists, um, which they probably know a lot about epidemiology. 
that is not the same thing as health economics. And one of the authors was an informal unpaid advisor on the Medicare for All bill for Sanders, which seems important to note as well. Yes. So finally, there was a little bit of back and forth on pandemic preparedness, um, but mostly the candidates just said they would fully fund the NIH and the CDC. What's missing I'm sort here? I'm expecting Elizabeth Warren to say that she's personally developing a vaccine in her spare time. <laughs> that, I'm, I'm just I'm surprised that they didn't take this. I'm surprised that they haven't yeah. had more I don't remember it. the details. She does have a plan. some plan. Yes. Yes. She <laughs> has an infectious disease plan. She has, I mean, it's true. She has a plan for everything. She could probably have a plan for cleaning my house and more power to her. But the, you know... She's the one who has the most detailed plan. I think Bloomberg put out a plan on infectious disease or something on this too. But I was—I thought there'd be a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you know, they don't really want to say that they. You can't promise that you can prevent this, and you yeah. can't prom. And you don't want to bash the scientists and the public health workers who are going to be doing their best. So it's a little bit tricky, and it's a little early. I was surprised that there wasn't more Trump bashing on. I was, yeah, I was that. just surprised that there was not more discussion about the role of the government in this sort of crisis. Maybe we could have a discussion at the next debate if the moderators say anyone who says public option or Medicare for all has to leave the stage. (laughs) Let's talk about other aspects of, of, of care. But I mean, I think we'll hear more about it. But, you know, again, how do you talk about these things responsibly? How do you strike that balance between awareness and panic? And that's the problem with scientists with public health. I mean, it's, you know, Trump doesn't want panic. I mean, that's the fair thing to say, you know, that nobody wants panic. It's that line between panic and preparedness. Although there, there's an enormous, uh, you know, body of research about how to communicate yes, public health right. information that, that much much of it done by epidemiologists. Yes, yes and I don't things. think people thought that Trump was necessarily a model of that last night. But it also wasn't. I mean, we've all heard him say many really. I mean, the basic thing is about to protect yourself is do the same thing you would do for the flu. That, you know, he, he may not have said it the way a televised doctor in a white coat would have said it, but, but you know, it is basically the most The information was correct. Not all of Wash it. I mean, hands. the test, some of what he said yeah. about testing, I think, is in dispute, but, but you know, it wasn't, it wasn't what it might have been. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think there was a lot more, you know, based on kind of the commentary I saw when this first started, there was a lot more fear that the president would be, you know, more alarmist and overly so in the way that he really attacked President Barack Obama uh, over Ebola. He said, you know, shut down the borders and he was spreading some misinformation and things like that. And so there was fear that Trump would be overly aggressive and alarmist. And so it's interesting to see yeah, now, now people are saying eh, you need to kind of, you know, you know yeah, now there's fear that he's not being alarmist enough. And, you know, it's it's you know, we all know that there's people in this administration who don't like Azar and there's been tension there and it's clear. And we saw, you know, examples of it yesterday. But, you know, the president and Azar do talk. I don't have their shared schedule, but I do know they have communicated, including during coronavirus. So somebody, whether it's, you know, Ivanka or Secretary Azar or, you know, who knows you know, Tony Fauci is a very good communicator. Um, you know, who knows who is talking to the president? The, you know, the tweets have not been the same vein that we've seen on other topics. Is that worded? Okay. Yeah, um, that, that sounds right. The You know, if you watch the whole press conference last night, it got a little bit wilder as time went on. But, you know, also it wasn't the equivalent of, you know, being certain that that hurricane was in Alabama because <laughs> I said so. You know, we didn't have a reprise of that. So somebody is getting through to some extent for right now. I don't know what he's tweeting while we were in the studio. Yeah. 
Good point. All right. Well, we'll clearly come back to this. So every week, I swear we're not going to have any more reproductive health stories to talk about. And every week, there is more news. Uh, Next week, there will definitely be news because the Supreme Court will hear its first major abortion case since Brett Kavanaugh replaced abortion swing vote Justice Anthony Kennedy. I'm actually going to go to that uh, oral argument. But this week, in cases that are heading to the Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, formerly one of the most liberal courts in the country, ruled that the Trump administration can basically evict Planned Parenthood from the federal family planning program by requiring clinics to get federal funds for family planning to stop making abortion referrals and by requiring physical and financial separation of entities that do family planning and those that perform abortions. A sort of similar set of rules was upheld by the Supreme Court way back when the first George Bush was president. Hard to imagine these rules being overturned at a higher level, right? I mean, this it, it, it looks like this kind of is where we're going to end up with Title X. People are nodding. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and Planned Parenthood already has um, foregone the funds um, as much as $60 million a year. Um, you know, they've kind of decided this is not something that they want to participate in uh, because, you know, they not only provide abortions, but obviously they talk about abortions if, if patients arrive and they consider that as an option for them. Um, so this is going to go through, it looks like. It's interesting. The American Medical Association has weighed in on this because mm-hmm. as they did back in the, the 1980s and early 1990s, saying that this is a violation of medical ethics that for them to not give patients all of their options. Um, and, you know, the AMA used to say stuff and people would pay attention. And this time they're just kind of getting rolled. And I wonder what this says about this sort of continuing cloud of the American Medical Association. They used to be the all-powerful. But not on the politics of reproductive rights have changed. uh, And also the AMA is a smaller and weaker organization than it once was, right? Like doctors in general are not joining it. Also hurtling towards the Supreme Court, a federal district court judge in Mississippi blocked a so-called heartbeat law that was supposed to take effect in July. The law would have banned abortion as soon as a heartbeat could be detected. That's often around six weeks, which is before many women are even aware that they're pregnant. It's the same judge that blocked Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban last year. And while so far all of these bans in several states have been stopped by lower courts, States are still pressing ahead and passing them, hoping that the Supreme Court will use one of them to overturn Roe, assuming they don't use the case they have before them this term to do that. I mean, are we sort of looking at at kind of an inevitable rollback of abortion rights with the current makeup of the court? And it's just sort of a matter of time. The case they're considering now, you know, has to do with regulations on uh, doctors who provide abortions. Uh, they have to be able to uh, check a patient into a hospital if there are any issues during an abortion, which we should note is 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 rare to have uh, complications. At the same time, you know, there are Republicans in Congress who want the Supreme Court to reconsider whether Roe v. Wade should consider should continue to be, you know, the ruling on abortion, which would, you know, turn the decision of the legalization of abortion to the states. Or they could go further or they could go less far. I mean, it's, it's a hypothetical. Do, do, do all of us expect that a year or two or three or maybe sooner or, you know, at some point in the next couple of years, there would be some rollback of abortion rights. I think we all think that's, am I speaking for everybody? We all yes. think that's likely. We don't know how far or how when. far yeah. they'll be rolled back. There's, uh, whether it goes back to the states, whether it's, you know, they change the limit, you know, they uphold the 20-week bans, but, you know, allow them before that. We, they're, they're probably infinite <laughs> permutations of, of what they will allow and what they will not allow, and none of us know what they're thinking, and none of us know what the composition of the court will be in two or three years. Or the election. Right. Um, and there are candidates, Democratic candidates, who are calling for codifying Roe v. Wade. I do think it's also worth noting with the six-week abortion ban, right, 
that's a missed menstrual cycle. Like it is very, very difficult at that point to know that you're pregnant. It no, just feels, it can, yeah. it's, no, not anymore for the, with the over the counter. I mean, I'm way, I mean, I was pregnant many, many years ago. My kid's 19 and yeah, I knew it six weeks. So, um, and if the over the counter things could do it at six weeks, then, I mean, I was trying and I wanted a baby. Mm-hmm. So I was anxious to find out. Um, you can you can go to the drugstore. Yeah, you Six, can, but, but many but many people don't. don't. I yeah. think is but the point. There's a difference between do you know and can you know. You don't. Sure. Have, you can. But also, yeah. I think it's fair to say that the six week bans are basically intended as they're tended to be. An, uh, yeah, they're tended to make abortion. You know, defect in, in, no more. Yeah, and they're and they're actually designed to to yeah, get the court to overturn. Know, and, you know, at that point, there's not even the life of the woman. I mean, it's would yeah. be, you know, it's six weeks. It's it's not like you're 20 weeks and you found out there's a fetal mm-hmm. abnormality or you have a an illness or something. I mean, six weeks is just a ban on abortion. Well, we will talk about this more next week. So that is the news for this week. Now we will play my Bill of the Month interview with Sydney Lupkin, and then we will be back with our extra credits for this week. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my ex-KHN colleague, now covering pharmaceuticals for NPR, Sydney Lupkin. Sydney, welcome back. Thanks, Julie. Happy to be here. So this month's bill comes from a family in Portland, Oregon. Who is the family and what is the medical problem? So I flew out to meet Sadiq Taksali and his family. Sadiq is an orthopedic surgeon. He and his wife adopted their daughter from India two years ago. We're not naming her to protect her medical privacy. But she loves to read. She told me she was reading six books when I visited. They're stacked on her shelf, in her book bag, on her bedside table. Anyway, her parents noticed that she had gotten very tall for her age. She grew seven inches since adoption and was taller than their 12-year-old son. And she's how old? She's eight now. Okay. So they took her to her doctor, who sent them to a specialist, and the diagnosis was central precocious puberty. So that's a rare disease, a rare condition, rather. Uh, That means that she'll basically develop sexually way earlier than her peers. Her parents decided they didn't want one more obstacle for her. She'd already adjusted to living in a new country, learning a new language, having a new family, and they figured that was plenty. But fortunately, there was a pharmaceutical implant that could put her early puberty on hold. And when uh, Sadiq took her in finally to get the implant, there was this lovely conversation that took place that made you remember that even though she might look a lot older, she's still only eight. The doctor wanted to talk to her about the implant and the procedure and puberty She brought up periods, and she's like, do you know what a period is? And she's like, yeah, it goes at the end of a sentence. So the good news is there is a treatment for her, but uh, it wasn't that simple, right? Right. The little girl's doctors told Sudeep that there were two nearly identical drugs made by the same company, endopharmaceuticals, and they said she could get either one. Clinically, it didn't matter. And he, as a good consumer, as well as being a doctor, tried to find out how much they might cost, and that turned out to not be so easy. Right. So the two drugs are virtually the same. Suprelin LA, which has a list price of about $37,000, and Vantis, which has a list price of about $4,500. They're both implants containing 50 milligrams of histrelin acetate that would go under the skin in her arm and release a little bit of a drug each day. There is a tiny dosing difference, 15 micrograms. That's less than the weight of an eyelash. So I ask several doctors, and they say, clinically, it doesn't make a difference. Sudeep wanted the cheaper option, Vantis, but his insurer, United Healthcare, said no. Vantis isn't FDA-approved for central precocious puberty. It's approved to treat prostate cancer. United Healthcare told me it typically sticks with the FDA, so it would only cover the expensive drug, Ciprelin. 
because that's the one that was approved to treat this little girl's condition. And and both these drugs are made by the same company, right? Right, the same company, Endo Pharmaceuticals, and they price them very differently. When I asked why, they just sort of stressed that they were different, they weren't exactly the same, the things that we sort of already talked about. And I said, well, is one somehow more expensive to manufacture? And they didn't answer that question. So I don't know. So he finally did get an answer about how much it would cost, right? Or sort of, an estimate. Sort of. So as a doctor, Sudeep knew that hospitals add markup to things like implants like this. And finally, he got the answer. It was going to cost $95,000. He was not amused. I was scared when I heard that number. And I was angry about this disparity. So what eventually happened here? So he was still trying to get his insurance company to reconsider, but it wasn't really going anywhere. And he reached out to reporters. He says once our Kaiser Health News colleague, Jonelle Alicia, started making calls, the hospital resubmitted its request for Vantis again. And this time, United Healthcare said OK. And she got the implant. And how much did the family end up paying? So they haven't paid yet. They've gotten an estimation of benefits, which we know says this is not a bill. It's kind of a pre-bill that is an estimate of what you might be on the hook for. And the total hospital charge for Vantis was more than $12,000. Sudeep will be responsible for about 4600 of that. He has a high deductible plan. He learned that the maximum that he'd be responsible for is about 5500 even if he had chosen the expensive drug. So the irony is at the end of the day, after all of this work and stress, he really only saved himself a few hundred bucks. His insurance at the end of the day will probably save the most from all this. And yet they only did it after he complained. Right. So what can patients do when they get a prescription for a drug that turns out to be really, really expensive? The first thing you can do is ask questions. Just ask, are there cheaper options? You can ask your doctor. You can ask your pharmacist. You can even do some Internet sleuthing on GoodRx. And that's a website. That is a website that has uh, coupons for drugs. It can also sort of help you compare the costs of different products. Um, And if you get a denial, you and your healthcare providers can work together to appeal, though, of course, it is tricky and time consuming. But you should also remember that even after you get a really high bill, you can still negotiate. And people do all the time. Um, Well, Sydney Lepkin, thank you very much for this month's Bill of the Month. Thanks, Julie. Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash health. Kimberly, why don't you go first this week? Sure. I picked a piece from the Miami Herald, um, and it's titled, A Miami Man Who Flew to China Worried He Might Have Coronavirus, He May Owe Thousands. Um, and it's by uh, Ben Konark. And I chose this piece because it blends so much of what we talk about, uh, the Affordable Care Act, short-term plans, which this patient had because uh, he couldn't afford the Affordable Care Act premiums that came with the plan. And so he just did a test to find out whether he had it. And the test itself, he turned out to have the flu. Spoiler. Um, the test itself is, could cost him a lot of money out of pocket. Just, yeah. And surprise bills. It's a kind of a combination of surprise yes. bills and coronavirus and the Affordable Care Act. Shafali. This is from Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, the HBO show. It is a Medicare for All special from February 16th. It's really good. Um, He goes in detail about Medicare for All, what it might cost, how we really don't know what it would cost because we don't know what we'd pay doctors and hospitals. Um, Multiple people told me to fact check it, and I looked and I was like, 
there's nothing to fact check. He does a really great job of getting into the issues here, and it's worth watching. And, I, you know, it's funny. When I saw that they were doing that, I was like – I rolled my eyes like, uh-oh, here we go. And it, mm-hmm. it is surprisingly mm-hmm. balanced. It's just – I mean, yeah. it, could be a, it could be a piece of journalism except that it's also funny. There are a couple <laughs> moments where he's maybe a little over the top in how he characterizes the public option. Well, he is British. Yes. Um, but it is very much worth watching. Yeah. Joanne. And just as Kimberly chose something that combined everything we're talking about, I chose something highlighting – what we don't talk about and need to talk about. Um, Brianna Ely, um, one of my reporters at Politico, spent several months on this. Harmed before birth, America's lost children are overshadowed by the opioid crisis. It's fetal alcohol syndrome, and which is lots of kids. There have been huge cutbacks, and it's not just Trump. It was Obama. Uh, we are spending very little. We really don't know much about it. Um, we are, know that it could be prevented by helping mothers not drink during pregnancy. Um, and she did a really good job. And it's a really wake-up call to a, an enormous problem that we've just sort of shoved off the table. Yeah, there's so much more to health care than Medicare for all. Um, I chose a story from Consumer Reports. It's called GoodRx Saves Money on Meds. It also shares data with Google, Facebook, and others by Thomas Germain. And the story is, is it is exactly what the headline says, that while lots of people recommend GoodRx as a good way to check the price of drugs and get coupons that can save you a lot of money on drugs, uh, by doing that, you are inadvertently sharing your information with lots of other entities. GoodRx insists that no data is shared to target you with individualized ads. But like everything else in healthcare, there are trade-offs. And in this case, in order to get those good deals and that information, you are potentially trading your medical privacy. Uh, So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Joanne Kennan. I'm at Shabali L. At Leonard K. L. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.